Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, it says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The book of Isaiah, like I said, is broadly broken down into two sections. The first 39 chapters deal with the judgment of God and the last 27 chapters deal with the comfort of God. Now, here's what we've learned, if we've learned anything at all in the book of Isaiah. God calls us to be servants in order to be servants of God. One of the primary characteristics that we need to cultivate is to trust him. And so over and over and over again, we are called to trust the Lord. Chapters seven through thirty nine were intended in part to provide for us a basis whereby we could trust the Lord over and over again. We learn from the scriptures, the Lord is trustworthy. He can be trusted. We also discover something else. That in that trust. There is a motive and a means. To trust him and and, and, and to 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 honor him in in chapters 40 through 55, it's going to be all about grace and grace becomes both the motive and the means so that we can exercise our God given right and responsibility to be servants of the Lord. We are called to. To be servants of God. And as we are called to be servants of God, we are also extended the hope that we can be set free 
in God. So the tone and the tenor of the second half of the book has caused a lot of critical scholars to doubt that the same person who wrote the first 39 chapters writes the next 27 chapters. It's sort of the argument that you probably heard. Could it be that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament? Oh, yeah. You see, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of judgment in the Old Testament is also the God of judgment in the New Testament. But you know what else? The God of love in the Old Testament is also the God of love in the New Testament. The prophecies and messages of Isaiah shift now. They're going to be oriented towards the future. Judah and its beloved capital, Jerusalem, will fall to Babylon. The people of God will experience hardship and pain. They will experience defeat and slavery. Most of the survivors that are attacked by the invading Babylonian hordes are going to be deported. They're going to experience the loss of almost everything. Their homes are going to be burnt and destroyed. Their savings gone. Their property gone. Their wealth gone. The temple in which they worship, gone. They will experience the heartbreaking grief that comes with the death of fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. They're going to experience unimaginable pain. And so in advance, through Isaiah, God is going to speak. And he's going to provide promises for a future generation. Now, this is interesting to me because that is the same thing that happens throughout the New Testament, that all of the plans and all of the promises that are given in the New Testament. Do you realize that they were written hundreds, even thousands of years before you were ever born? The promises of God anticipate the circumstances of the people of God. And so. The day would come when God, through his salvation and his greatness, would deliver them. The day would come already, even before the Babylonian captivity takes place. God, in advance, promises that he will show up and he will set them free. Isn't that an amazing thought? Because the same is true. God promises in advance. That even though you might be struggling with pain and you might be struggling with discouragement and you might be struggling with despair and you might be struggling with all kinds of painful circumstances, problems and addictions. God wants to set you free. Would you like to be set free? Would you like to be used by God? To help someone else be free. You see. That's part of the promises that we're going to learn about in the next several chapters. And by the way, like I said, in chapters 40 through 48, Isaiah is going to paint a picture of hope and comfort and freedom. God's people will experience the power of God and they're going to experience the salvation of God. The people of God will be set free. They will be set free by the agency of God's salvation. They will be set free because of God's greatness. They will be set free by God's power to shape and control and redeem human history. 
in chapter 41, uh, set free through God's perfect servant, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to be talked about in chapter 42, set free by redemption. And Isaiah will present for us a study of both the Redeemer and the redemption in chapter 43. And then he's going to describe how we are set free. We're set free by the Lord, by the living and true God, as contrasted with idols. We are set free by God's enormous power to work through people and to work through nations. We are set free by turning away from idolatry and by turning away from the temptations of Babylon, which are represented by the world. And then a strict warning is going to be given about not oppressing People and also were set free by the plan of redemption and by the hope of being delivered from a future punishment, from a future judgment, from a future wrath. There is a promise that is given that that person who is in Christ isn't going to face judgment. That's what the New Testament means when it says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so. The next several chapters are directed for those who experience pain and hardship and suffering and trial, but it's also directed for those that God wants to use to bring comfort and hope to hurting people. You've heard me say this on more than one occasion, that there are two kinds of people in the world, Italian people and people who wish they were. No, that's not the, the two kinds. People who have hope and people who need hope. And so, you know, the song, remember, sometimes in our lives, we all have pain. We all have sorrow. You know what? But if we are wise, we know that there's always tomorrow. Remember, lean on me. And, and that's exactly what's happening. Now we go from this picture of judgment to this ultimate picture of comfort, confidence, assurance, trust. Now, I know a little bit about you. Many of you. Some of you are going through hardships and those hardships are mild and some of them are major. Some of the hardship is we're not getting along with each other or we're experiencing minor pain. We're experiencing minor inconvenience. We're experiencing minor misunderstandings. But some of you are facing life threatening illnesses. Some of you are facing a terminal disease and you've been already diagnosed with cancer. Some of you are facing difficulties and challenges and painful circumstances that have threatened your life over and over and over again. And when Isaiah wrote these words, Judea and Jerusalem were about to march into the future. A hundred and sixty plus years of continuous hardship, continuous suffering, continuous trial for about ninety three years. There would be a stream of filth and wickedness that would challenge their nation. It would build into a flood and it would cause the collapse of their civilization. 
and then the Babylonian captivity. And then they would be scattered throughout the whole Babylonian Empire. And then they would suffer unbearable discrimination. They would suffer unbearable hardship of an enslaved people. And they would need hope. And they would need comfort. And they would need care for the long, difficult years. And the people would need to trust God. And they would need to trust his promise of deliverance. They would need to be motivated to live righteously and godly and look forward to the day of redemption by the Savior who would return them to the land. They would need to keep the promise alive in their hearts that one day the Lord would return and return them to the land of Judah and to keep that hope alive. To keep that hope alive, Isaiah places, or God places, into the heart of Isaiah this message. The message of salvation in verses 1 through 11. The message of the greatness of God, which we'll look at later. And it begins with four voices. We're going to hear the voice of God in verses 1 and 2. We're going to hear the voice of the prophet in verses 3 through 5. We're going to hear the voice of God speaking to the prophet in verses 6 through 8. And we're going to hear the voice of righteous believers in verses 9 through 11. And I I think that there's a real reason why this particular section starts off that way, because there is a multitude of voices that are speaking to you. And it comes on the radio and it comes on television and it comes through uh, magazines and it comes through well-meaning family and well-meaning friends. Who try to discourage you and who try to tell you that God isn't real and that the Bible doesn't matter and and that church is a joke. And that the promises of God and the hope of God It's something that you shouldn't rely on. But listen carefully to the voice of God. God's salvation will set us free. Look what it says. It begins with this note. Comfort. Yes. Comfort. My people. Says your God. Now you've got to understand something. That opening verse is like medicine. Have you ever had a a terrible trial? And you wondered if God was still your God. Have you ever had a horrible experience and and you cried out and you said, God, am I even a Christian? Do you even know who I am? Do you know? Do you even care about me? And so it begins with that statement. Comfort. Yes. Comfort my people. Yes, there's discipline and yes, there's pain and yes, there's tragedy and yes, there's suffering. But even in this pain and tragedy and suffering, the Lord is issuing an invitation. And look what it says. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Right away, you need to know something that people in pain need hope. As a matter of fact, two of my favorite scriptures that I find myself going to over and over again is found in Romans chapter 15. 
I've read them to you maybe on a thousand occasions. In Romans 15, 4, it says, whatever, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. That the Scriptures are the source of hope. And then in verse 13, Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. People in pain need hope. And they need comfort. And remember, as Isaiah is looking into the future, he is looking into the future and he's envisioning a time when the children of Judah and Jerusalem have made their ways to the shores of Euphrates and they're opening up the scroll of Isaiah and they're asking themselves, what are we doing here? And God wants to comfort them. The people have been taken captive. They're, they're experiencing hardship. They're going to need comfort and hope. And the Lord, and this is important, the Lord wants them to be comforted. You'll note something that the Lord doesn't go, I told you so. I told you that your wickedness and your rebellion isn't going to pay off. Oh, the way of the transgressor is hard. God is really wanting to bring comfort. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul writes, and he says, Now, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. The reason why I'm, I'm quoting that scripture to you is there are certain times when we have to be firm in our speech. But there are other times when we need to be gracious in our speech. The Lord reaches out with empathy and intense compassion. God wants the people to trust him, to confess their sins, to cast their cares on him. The Lord wants our worship and our obedience and a walk of faith. And so listen carefully. He says, comfort. Yes. Comfort my people. One of the things that you need to understand why it's repeated twice, typically in the Bible, when the Lord repeats something, it is repeated to express urgency and necessity. He wants to get the message across to them. And he wants that comfort to be a deep spiritual rest, a rest that comes from the assurance that our lives are in his hands. God is willing to give us strength and courage to bear our burdens and to share our burdens. And part, I know I'm painting this picture, but I need you to understand something. The Jews would desperately need this comfort. Their suffering at times would seem unbearable. Every discouraging thought, every crushing emotional pain, utter devastation, families killed, daughters raped, homes burned, children chained. Yes, they would be deeply distressed. Yes, they would be deeply discouraged. Some would lose all hope for the future. And even some righteous believers would doubt. Even some righteous believers would question God. Even righteous believers would sit and wonder why God allowed them to suffer so much pain. And then they would be tempted. Tempted not to trust God. 
Some were even tempted to cash it in and abandon all faith. Have you ever been in a circumstance where you thought, is it worth it? Is, it, is this really worth it? Seems to be that my life was a lot better off when I wasn't a Christian. I accept Christ and all hell breaks loose. You know why? Because prior to your coming to Christ, you weren't a threat. But that's part of the point. That's part of the point. That even in pain, even in deprivation, even in times of hardship and and sorrow, God is trying to gather his people together and remind them that he loves them. And that he's sensitive towards them and compassionate towards them. And it says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Verse 2, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. I love that expression because in the, in the Hebrew language, that expression, speak comfort to Jerusalem. Do you know what it says in the original language? It says, speak tenderly. It's use compassion. It's God's voice of compassion. It's God's voice of mercy. It's God's voice of tenderness. Again, when you're dealing with people who need to be set free, that isn't the time to heap upon them ridicule and judgment. God's heart is a heart filled with tender feelings for his people. And so to speak tenderly, by the way is an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language means speak in such a way that their heart will hear your heart. Isn't that good? Speak in such a way that their heart will hear your heart. You know, the Bible says that we're to weep with those who weep. And we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. And sometimes when you hear the news that you've lost a loved one and sometimes when you hear the news that your husband has died or that your wife has died or or that a child has died, sometimes the right response is to just simply sit with the person and weep. Because you're aware of the pain and you're aware of the sorrow. There were two words of comfort that the Lord wanted to share. Look what it says. The two words that he wanted to share were, number one, that her warfare is ended. And number two, that her iniquity is pardoned. It was the message that, hey, guess what? The war is ended or accomplished. And your welfare is about to be accomplished or completed in, in, the per, in, in the form of forgiveness. In other words, that her iniquity is pardoned. Now, I want you to think carefully about what the Lord is saying. When it says, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Please don't make the mistake of misinterpreting this passage. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that you can atone for your own sins or that your suffering or your pain or your hardship will somehow make your sin go away because that's not what it's saying. 
What it is saying, however, is that sometimes in the midst of pain and sometimes in the midst of hardship and sometimes because of the consequences of sin, we suffer terribly. But now the Lord is speaking a word of hope to these people who have been taken captive and he wants to remind them that he loves them and that he's still willing to deliver them. And that he is willing to forgive them. You have to understand something, what an amazing assurance this is. Because down through the centuries, the people of God had committed horrible sins. Anyone who has even superficially read the Old Testament knows about the terrible evils. The children of Israel were were guilty of immorality. They were guilty of drunkenness. They were guilty of pride. They were guilty of abuse. They were guilty of lawlessness, of violence, of idolatry, of hypocrisy, of of empty formal worship that we've already seen in the book of Isaiah. In other words, their religion was a sham. They were guilty of unbelief. They were guilty of distrust. They were guilty of ridiculing God's word. They were guilty of mockery and persecuting God's people. Have you ever thought, I have sinned so much. God would never forgive me. Okay, I can understand how he could forgive this, and I can understand how he could forgive that, and I can understand how he could forgive this, but you crossed the line. Now, you need to understand something else. Isaiah is writing about a future that's still over a hundred years into the future. They don't know it at this point, but everything is gone and the temple is gone and you can't bring a lamb to the temple and the sacrificial system is gone. They don't have a place of worship and they don't have a place of sacrifice. And so when they are standing by the shores of the Euphrates and they open Isaiah's scroll and they read the words that her iniquity is pardoned. They swallow hard because they believe that that might not be true. Just like you. When you read the New Testament and you go to the scroll of 1 John and you go to the first chapter and then you go to the ninth verse and you read the words. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Have you ever read that scripture and wept and said, is this true? Is it really true? If I confess my sin, are you truly faithful and just to forgive me? Will you really for real pardon me? Now, remember. God allowed the collapse of Judah and the Babylonian captivity as a means of judgment to arouse the people to repent. And sometimes that's exactly what God does in our life. He'll use hardship and pain and suffering and deprivation. He will put us in time out. So that we will cry out to him. So that we will cry out to him and we will say, "Okay, God, you've got my attention. I think I'm pretty much willing now to repent of my sin. I think I'm willing to turn from my evil and my wickedness and my rebellion. I think I'm ready to embrace your promises. Fast forward into the future. That's exactly what the 
people reading the scroll of Isaiah. And by the way, you know who some of the famous people who would be reading this scroll in that future? You know his name, Daniel. Daniel will be taken captive and he will be reading the scroll of Isaiah. And it's the very words that we're reading right at this very moment that will create within him a heart filled with joy and filled with the assurance that God has a plan and a purpose for his people. It will create in his heart the understanding that the captivity would come to an end, that God has a plan and that their sins would be forgiven. And you have to understand that 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 they, that that is understood in the context of repentance, turning from sin, turning back to God, because that becomes the prerequisite for forgiveness. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 40. It says, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they have also walked contrary to me and that I have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. In the New Testament, the application would be this. I love you. I am willing to forgive you. I am willing to honor the deal that I made with you when you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Remember when you prayed to receive Christ and you said, Lord, if you'll forgive my sins, if you'll wash me and cleanse me, if you'll write my name in the Lamb's book of life, I promise that I will love you and, and I'll serve you. Some of you prayed that prayer and you really meant it. And then you find yourself in a downward spiral of rebellion and disobedience and more rebellion and disobedience and more rebellion and disobedience. And you ask the question, God, will you even take me back? And the answer is yes. I'll remember the deal that I made with you. And so. We see the voice of God. And then we see the voice of the prophet. Look what it says in verse three. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We've heard the voice of God and now we hear another voice. This time it's the voice of the prophet. It seems to me that this is probably the voice of Isaiah. And he has wonderful news. The wonderful news is that the king is coming. And for those of you who are here on Sunday and you know that we've been going through John's gospel. You'll remember that John the Baptist came as the precursor, if you will, to the Messiah. And so here we see the custom in the ancient world of sending ambassadors to prepare the people that the king is coming. A king's visit, by the way, in an ancient land was a cause for celebration. 
It would be like if the president of the United States came to Denver. All kinds of incredible arrangements would be made to meet the president at the airport, to have an entourage, to, to make sure that the lights and the stops were well guarded. There would be the governor and the mayor and municipal people and and all kinds of the, the you know, the the people who are the decision makers. They come from all around in order to safely bring the president to his destination. Well, well in the ancient world, it was exactly the same thing. Except in the ancient world, they didn't have stop signs and they didn't have roads. They had dirt and deserts. And so in order to they would have to build a special road. And sometimes that would mean that you would have to fill in valleys. And sometimes that meant you had to grade the side of hills. That meant that you had to remove all obstacles in the path of the king. Knowing that the Lord is coming, knowing that people need to make preparation for the king, the prophet is in effect saying it's time to remove all the things that are twisted and crooked and bent and bad in our lives. If ever there was a time because the king is coming, now is the time to abandon all unrighteous behavior. Yeah, now is the time to stop going to the bars. Now is the time to quit the tequila shots. Now is the time to stop smoking the cigarettes that don't have writing on it. Now is the time to put off the old. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about this in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and a glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to the people and he's saying, if ever there was a time to put off all of those things that are hindering you in your life and hindering you in your walk, now is the time to do it. Now is the time to level your life. Now is the time to cultivate a consistent lifestyle of confident, righteous behavior. As a matter of fact. In Hebrews chapter 12, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. Is there a root of bitterness in your heart? Are you angry and upset? And does it fill your life and you begin to seethe? It says, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. 
In a way, what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 through 17 is saying about Esau. Remember, there were two brothers, Esau and Jacob. One was carnal and one was spiritual. One was earthly minded and the other one was heavenly minded. Both Esau and Jacob had something in common. They had a mother and a father who had a covenant relationship with God. They grew up in a religious home together. But for one, religion was a joke. It was just something that you do. Yeah, mom and dad go to church. Yeah, mom and dad open their Bible. But for Esau, it was just a religious game. And if ever there was a time not to play the religious game, it was now. By the way, I'm sure most of you reading that particular passage in the book of Isaiah, when you read where it says, prepare the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Have you seen that somewhere before? Yeah. Yeah. It's found in the New Testament, isn't it? This is the same verse that John the Baptist quotes when the religious leaders come to him and they say, who are you? And he says, I'm the voice. John was the one who prepared for the Messiah's ministry. But in reality, the scripture applies this to every believer in every generation. We must prepare ourselves and others for the coming of the Lord. And the prophet Isaiah, as he's speaking to a future generation who are going to be in the midst of deprivation and despair, he says, in effect, become a voice of hope. Won't you open your mouth? Won't you tell people that there's a God who loves them, that there's a Savior who has redeemed them? We must all prepare ourselves and others for the coming of the Lord. In Isaiah's day, he was warning the future generation. In John's day, he was baptizing and warning people to turn to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what does this mean for us? Well, we prepare ourselves. And we become a voice and we look for the blessed hope, the return of our Savior. I love what John Corson has to say about this passage. He writes in a paragraph, quote, the valley of depression, discouragement and defeat needs to be filled in. The mountain of pride and prayerlessness and haughtiness needs to be taken down. The crooked place of errors need to be straightened out. And the rough places of irritation need to be made smooth. I don't have time to be in the valley of depression. I don't have time to feel sorry for myself. I've got work to do. I don't have a right to be proud or irritated because I have a job to do. We need to forget about our pain and our problems and our hurt and our heartaches. We need to realize that we have the same call John the Baptist did to prepare a way in the wilderness for a world that needs Jesus. Unquote. You know what I like about that quote? That it's true. But I would add something else. We do live in a 
a, a painful times and depressing times and difficult times. And the truth is, if you have an, a preoccupation with your pain, with your sorrow, with your problems, with your sin, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to point other people to Jesus. So here's what I would, would, would caution and remind you. We don't ignore our depression. We don't ignore our discouragement. We don't ignore our defeat. We don't ignore our pride. We don't ignore our prayerlessness. We don't ignore our haughtiness. We confess it. We turn from it. And we embrace all that God has for us. So that we can become men and women of faith. And look at the voice of the prophet in verse six. Look at what it says. The voice said, cry out. And he said, well, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Do you understand what's happening? The Lord is speaking to the prophet. And as the voice of God, the Lord speaks to the prophet, cry out. The prophet says, what do you want me to say? And remember who the audience is. It's the people who need hope. It's the people who need comfort. It's the people who are in pain. It is the people who are distressed. And what does he say? He reminds them, here's what I want you to tell them. I want you to contrast the living God, the eternal God, with people who are temporal and passing. I want you to contrast that which is temporary with that which is eternal. I want you, in order to bring comfort, to put things in perspective. Your problems are temporary. God is eternal. Your pain and suffering is only for a moment. But the glory that's found in God and in Christ is forever. Is there pain right now for many of us? Yes. Is there hardship for many of us right now? Yes. But no matter how enduring that pain and no matter how enduring that hardship, it's only a moment in time and space. And you know, it's difficult. It truly is difficult when you're talking to a person in pain and you say to them, this is only for a moment. This trial is only for a moment. It's very, very, very difficult to remind a person in pain that the pain will pass. Particularly if you're the person in pain. And particularly if you're the person who's woken up every day, day after day, and week after week with the same pain. But Isaiah preached to a generation whose prospects were bleak and their future was even bleaker. But we've told, we're told to contrast that which is temporal, which that is, is eternal. You know, I was reading something today that somewhat startled me. I read somewhere that this generation, our generation, may be the first generation in American history that doesn't have as much as their mothers and fathers did. That this might be right now, right at this very moment, a plateau that we've reached and that our children and our grandchildren may be facing some pain and some hardship and some difficulty. 
And you know what? The truth is, if we're going to model comfort and hope, what it means to be set free by the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're going to have to start modeling the temporal and the eternal. Isaiah told his generation, Isaiah told them that the people and their glory will fade away. They will pass away, but that God and his word are eternal and strong and unfailing. Human life is short compared to eternity. People will age. People will die. Their bodies will decompose. But the promises of God are sure, eternal, enduring, everlasting. God's word is imperishable and God's promises unfailing. And so, again, he points to them. You can trust God's word. Far from being hopeless, we can have hope and comfort knowing that God is right on schedule. God is right on plan. God is right on course. And see, that's part of what you have to understand, that even in the circumstances of the prophetic past and the prophetic future that is taking place, even as Isaiah is speaking, Isaiah is reminding them that even in their captivity at this point, there's going to come a time when God will set them free and return them back to the land. That's 